This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Donald Trump is the first president to become internationally known for his tweet storms, insulting world leaders, insulting his domestic opponents, firing his secretary of state, and firing up his base. He's also the first president to have a director of social media. That man is Dan Scavino. The tweets get a lot of attention, but few people know about Scavino. So who is he? And what role does he play in writing Trump's tweets? Those are some of the questions my guest Robert Draper sets out to answer in his New York Times Magazine article, The Man Behind the President's Tweets, unraveling the mystery of the inscrutable White House social media director whose job is to help at real Donald Trump stay unpresidential. The article is already on the Times website and will be in the newspaper Sunday. Draper is a writer at large for the Times Magazine. Robert Draper, welcome back to Fresh Air. Thanks so much for having me. Why did you want to write about Dan Scavino? Because Dan Scavino, um, a person most Americans have never heard of, is in a lot of ways a window onto Trump, uh, a more acute window, I should say, than almost any other. He, he's, uh, he shows you what Trump values most. He shows you how to track the evolution of modern White House communications. Uh, and Scavino is, um, we should, I, I suppose, establish at this point that he has an important job. He's, uh, his title is assistant to the president, and he has an important location which is a West Wing office just outside of the Oval Office. But what's his actual job? That's what I wanted to find out. And, it, and basically, uh, the thumbnail sketch of it is that he manages Trump's Twitter account. And, um, uh, and in the end, um, Trump values his personal printing press, um, his Twitter page, more than just about anything. What does it mean that he manages Trump's Twitter account? Because Trump seems to be, I don't know, everybody's impression is that Trump wakes up and just starts tweeting, either right. in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning. And I doubt that Dan Scavino's in bed with him when he does that. So in what way does he actually manage Trump's Twitter account? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And, and uh, it's certainly, as you've just described it, Terry, that's how the White House would prefer that we think of Trump's tweets. Uh, they would prefer that we see this as the unvarnished Donald Trump. This is Donald Trump circumnavigating fake news and telling us what's really on his mind and what's really the truth. Well, that's kind of the way it goes, but not entirely. When Trump decides he wants to tweet something, uh, so if you look at Trump's Twitter page, you'll see for one thing a few sort of anodyne things. I'll be at such and such a place at one o'clock. Trump's not writing that. Dan Scavino is. Um, then you'll see other things that will say, um, uh, I'm not the corrupt one. Hillary Clinton is corrupt. And it'll list three or four reasons why Hillary Clinton is the corrupt one, not Trump. Well, that's Trump, but it's Trump in collusion, as it were, with Scavino, who will supply the litany of um, of examples. There are also some um, tweets that uh, Trump will dictate uh, to Scavino, and Scavino will then uh, polish them up, uh, make sure there are no grammatical errors or anything like that. Trump will look at them and then say, okay, that looks good, or, or uh, no, no, I want you to put this back in. And then he'll say, you know, go ahead and hit send, and, and Scavino will do so. You're right that there certainly are tweets that Trump himself writes in the dark of night or first thing in the morning that Dan Scavino sees when the rest of the world sees. That's probably about half of the tweets overall. Uh, but of the 37,000 or so tweets that, that Trump has sent out, Dan Scavino is responsible for, um, you know, at least as a co-conspirator, to about half of those. So I looked at Dan Scavino's tweets, and like President Trump, 
you know, like fake news is in capital letters. Um, so I have a stylistic question for you. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. Trump's tweets are so full of capital letters and scare quotes. Is that something that you think initially came from Trump or did Scavino uh, kind of um, uh, set the tone, set the style for Trump to follow with the scare quotes and the caps? So let's, for one thing, establish, Terry, that that none of us is in the room when individual tweets are happening. And, and I would have loved to have been able to deconstruct a series of tweets for this story uh, and say, you know, here's what Scavino supplied. Here's, you know, what the first draft of this was. And I was unable. It happens to be um, an intimate act for President Trump on the order of um, getting that hairdo of his ready. It's, you know, it's, it's something that, that all takes place backstage. Having said all all of that, Trump more or less set his own template with the all caps and saying sad exclamation point. Uh, but Scavino has added to that template. Uh, Trump didn't know how to do a hashtag before. And um, Trump, he would have a general sentiment, but would lack specifics. And so when we look at a Trump tweet, it is in many ways an amalgamation of Trump's basic grievance, uh, the establishment of a, a grievance or the establishment of a boast, and uh, supplied then with a few technical details such as hashtags and things. But, but yes, the all caps actually is something that Trump has been doing going back to, I'd say, 2012 before Scavino had any access to Trump's Twitter account. He began, Scavino did, uh, to um, uh, co-conspire with Trump on the at real Donald Trump Twitter account in 2015. So I, I want to play an example of like what could possibly go wrong, you know, with <laughs> with Trump's tweets. And this is, you know, one of his most famous ones. This is one of the greatest hits. This is the Kofefe tweet. <laughs> and nobody yes. knew like what Kofefe meant. So, so Robert, would you read the tweet for us? Sure. This was a tweet that took place, um, of course, six minutes after midnight on May the 31st, 2017, from the at real Donald Trump um, Twitter account. It simply says, despite the constant negative press, Kafefe. Kafefe is spelled C-O-V-F-E-F-E. There's nothing that takes place after that. And um, so Washington was roiling with an effort to um, decipher this word kafefe, uh, scrambling in urban dictionaries, trying to figure out its meaning. And, so so uh, I'm going to stop you there because we actually yeah. have the Sean Spicer clip where mm -hmm. Sean Spicer is at a news briefing and he's being asked, like, what does kafefe mean? And so here's how that went. Do you think people should be concerned um, that the president posted somewhat of an incoherent tweet last night and that it then stayed up for hours? Uh, no. Why did it stay up so long? After, is, is no one watching this? No, I, I think the the, uh, the president and a small group of people know exactly what he meant. Blake. Blake. What does it mean? Blake. What is Kofefe? Blake. No, but so you can't Blake. itself. Okay. So, so what, if anything, were you able to learn about that? Like Sean Spicer said that the president and a small group of people know exactly what the president meant. That well, that's that yeah, that's Sean Spicer's yeah, right, yeah, no, that's Sean Spicer's version of thinking on his feet. Um, the reality is that at the time, no one knew anything about that tweet. The word kafefe, and, and in the context of what um, that sentence seemed to be heading towards, in all likelihood meant coverage. And he just simply stopped writing. For what reason? We don't know. Maybe his phone rang. Maybe maybe he fell asleep. We're not sure. There's a few tip-offs, by the way, as to why that 
tweet at least was completely um, Donald Trump. One of them is the the hour at 12.06 a.m. The other is that it is a you know, a misspelling, a half-finished thought, half-finished sentence. And uh, and Scavino is essentially around, you know, to correct grammatical errors, correct misspellings. Uh, the the, um, the Trump White House, I should say, has was very resistant to um, uh, deconstructing this stuff for me and elaborating on on um, Dan Scavino's roles in, in um, uh, President Trump's individual tweets. But they did concede to me that, yes, you know, Scavino will correct misspellings and all of that. Uh, it, it therefore... Um, you know, defies any rational, uh, you know, imagination that uh, that Scavino would have allowed this to pass. This was, in fact, for better or for worse, the unvarnished Donald Trump at work. So you said that the aides were um, people in the White House were reluctant to talk with you about Dan Scavino, and Dan Scavino would not talk with you. That's right. Yeah. And I tried for months to get him to do so. Now, Scavino is reticent for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them is that. He has watched, you know, one staffer after the next, most famously Anthony Scaramucci, who lasted for um, 10 days or so uh, to uh, fall on their sword, uh, to self-emulate, to pick your metaphor, um, but basically uh, to call too much attention to themselves, which is something that the president can't stand. As, as President Trump said when he was candidate Trump to Corey Lewandowski in 2016, and there was a glowing profile written of Lewandowski that got a lot of attention, he, he said to Lewandowski, you know, there's only one star in this campaign. Uh, and Scavino has learned that all too well. So for that reason, he has been reluctant to submit to any interviews. But the other reason, of course, is the one that we're talking about, which is that this is a surprisingly sensitive subject. Trump um, values a lot of things, and, and Scavino um, supplies those. He values loyalty. Uh, he values um, love. and uh, But he also uh, values the primacy of his personal printing press and wants the world to believe that it's his and his alone. And so for uh, anybody to say, well, actually, you know, I had a hand in that. And frequently, by the way, people will, will do so. There will be friends of Trump's who will say to him, Mr. President, you know, you ought to tweet this out. Uh, they'll suggest, um, you know, a, a turn of phrase. When Trump is on Air Force One or, or previous to this, when he was on his 757, he'd have his aides around him while he'd be writing a tweet and they would suggest wording. Um, his former communications director, Hope Hicks, was apparently very good at put downs. And uh, Trump would often incorporate that stuff. But the notion that this is a collaborative effort. The notion that this is something other than just one great man's uh, writing, uh, the person who has referred to himself as the Ernest Hemingway of Twitter, uh, is like a, a mortal blow that Trump himself you know, simply cannot accept. And so it's for that reason that Scavino and all the others in the White House uh, were um, extremely resistant <laughs> to me touching on this particular topic. But you say that Scavino is considered to be the conductor of of the Trump train. What does that mean? Yeah, so I, I mentioned just a minute ago that, that um, Trump values love and being loved. The, the Trump train is the enthusiastic fan base of which Scavino was the conductor. Now, what does it mean to be the conductor of his base? It really just means to be the guy who follows those people on Twitter, who will tweet out to them, who will retweet their own stuff, who will rile them up and, and get them excited by supplying video imagery of um, Trump at a White House event or or out on the campaign trail uh, doing some kind of rally with with huge crowds. And then what Scavino will do is show that end product, uh, show um, the retweets, the the people liking a particular tweet of Trump's or of a particular event to the president 
himself. And uh, and so that's why, you know, when in 2016, when I first you know began to be really interested in Dan Scavino, I'd see this guy there who, who was part of this very small group that would follow the candidate around. It would be Hope Hicks, the communications director, Keith Schiller, the director of security, and um, Corey Lewandowski, the campaign manager. It was an unorthodox campaign, but at least those were roles that were familiar, roles you could understand. But then there's this other guy who's standing at the side of the stage, um, taking photographs, and then glowering at his laptop while he's on, on Trump's plane later, posting them onto Facebook. And I just thought, wow, is this guy just like a member of Trump's fan club? He was. He was the conductor of that fan club. He was the conductor of the Trump train. As it turned out, that was a very important job for Donald Trump. So it sounds like during the campaign, there were two jobs that Scavino had. One was to be the conductor of the Trump train, you know, feed the enthusiasm of the base. But the other was to show a flattering mirror to the president and show him the best tweets that would boost his ego. Sure. Yeah. Now, to back into this, Terry, when when Scavino first joined the campaign, he was someone who had zero political experience, was himself a registered independent, uh, you know, was not seemingly a guy who'd be of any particular value to this nascent candidacy. But he was a Trump loyalist. He was a Trump diehard. He, had, you know, Trump had met him on the golf course when Trump was uh, golfing, and and Scavino was his caddy. Uh, years later, uh, Scavino worked up the ranks. He became the assistant manager of that very golf course, and then the general general manager. Then when Trump decides he wants to run for president in early 2015, uh, Scavino immediately volunteers. Uh, he had going for him that he was um, uh, a loyalist. That was it. And started out just doing whatever the campaign asked of him, ranging from going to get Trump's, um, you know, McDonald's burgers and KFC buckets to um, a meeting with VIPs uh, and um, and being a glad hander. Uh, but that over time morphed into being the guy who would um, uh, post uh, take photographs and take videos and post them onto Trump's um, Facebook account, and then began to be as well the person who would uh, uh, to help Trump put things out on Twitter. So it was really that that he was an omnibus kind of guy, uh, willing to do anything and everything that made him a value. But the thing that mattered most to Trump, uh, even when Facebook was beginning to um, gain traction as a very important component to Trump's 2016 campaign, uh, Trump understood in the abstract that this thing that Jared Kushner was helping to spearhead was a value to the campaign. But he really didn't care about it. He would have Scavino come on stage now and again and say, you know, we've now had X number of million impressions, X number of likes and follows on Facebook. What mattered to Trump, though, was was um, the uh, visceral immediacy and impact of Twitter. And Scavino's proximity to him became particularly important uh, owing to um, what he was doing with Trump on Trump's Twitter account. Um, Trump has also uh, tweeted several gifts over time, like controversial gifts. For instance, the one where uh, Trump is wrestling someone, and the person in reality was Vince McMahon, the head of the WWE, uh, and this was part of one of their wrestling spectacles. But in the GIF, instead of seeing Vince McMahon's head, we see like a CNN logo. So it looked like, okay, President Trump is physically attacking CNN. There was another GIF of President Trump swinging a golf club and the ball hits Hillary Clinton. Um, so some people might think that these are really funny and a lot of people think they're offensive and dangerous. Um, do you know, does Trump spend time looking for gifts to retweet 
or is that Scavino who finds them, shows them to Trump, and then Trump tweets them? The latter. Uh, Trump does um, have the capability of going on, and he now has an iPhone, of scrolling up and down Twitter and looking at things. But but he'd, he'd frankly rather watch TV, rather watch Fox News. And, and so it's not Trump who spends hours and hours going through all of this stuff, seeing uh, um, uh, you know who's saying what about him, and, and and why do so after all when you're President Trump and have just down the hall a person who is paid one hundred seventy nine thousand seven hundred dollars a year to do exactly that. Dan Scavino spends hours upon hours, you know, looking and seeing what the base is seeing, and if he'll see a particular image, um, he'll show it to the president directly, and he'll say, "Take a look at that," and Trump will say, "Wow, that's great." Tweet that out. Again, we we can't say conclusively whether those particular gifts that you just mentioned, Terry, uh, were ones that followed the order that I've just described. But the circumstantial evidence is very plain that that's how it works, because it is, and the White House was very upfront with me about this aspect, that no one understands Trump's base. No one pays attention to that base uh, and courts that base and cultivates that base uh, uh, more than Dan Scavino. Now, as I came to learn, um, that does not mean that like Scavino goes out and has drinks with members of the alt-right or talks to them on the phone all the time or even trades emails with them. Like uh, uh, Steve Bannon had told me that this alt-right figure, um, Mike Cernovich, who was promulgating that Pizzagate theory wherein um, uh, Hillary Clinton's people supposedly were running a pedophilia ring in the basement of a Washington, D.C. area pizzeria. Uh, Steve Bannon had said to me, I didn't even know who Mike Cernovich was until um, Scavino introduced him to me. And those are the kind of people that Scavino stays in touch with. I talked to Cernovich about this, and it turns out he'd never spoken to Scavino in his life, that they'd never traded emails, never done direct messages anything like that. That didn't, however, mean that what Bannon was saying was untrue. It just meant that the relationship that Scavino had with him was purely a Twitter relationship. He would see what they were up to on their Twitter feeds. He would retweet it. He would show it to Trump. Trump would respond in kind. And so having his hands on the pepes, as uh, Steve Bannon um, put it to me about um, Scavino, really consists on just following what they do on Twitter and letting the president know. So in some ways... Scavino helped connect Trump to the alt-right and to white nationalists through connecting them on Twitter. That's right. And and I should say that there's no evidence available that Dan Scavino shares their ideology. In fact, I should speak even more broadly and say that, that Dan Scavino doesn't have an ideology other than uh, loving Donald Trump. Um, and in that sense, he's probably like millions in his base who, for whatever ideology they had before, they abandoned it. And now their ideology can just best be uh, described as Trump supporters. And so to Dan Scavino, what matters about these people is that they are attacking Trump's opponents and that they are applauding Trump. Um, the fact that they may be white nationalists uh, um, is not um, a positive for Scavino. It's also, however, not a disqualifier. And so that has gotten Scavino in trouble, such as during the the campaign when he retweeted a um, star of David uh, relating to his 
Hillary Clinton and uh, was immediately called out uh, for uh, being you know supportive of, of white nationalists. And Scavino's response was, "No, no, no. This was um, this was actually meant to be a sheriff star uh, to show how um, to symbolize how Hillary Clinton has run uh, afoul of the law." What it shows you then is that Scavino was seeing things that um, that were useful to the campaign without having a full appreciation of the uh, ideological undergirdings of those. You described Scavino as being the only remaining member of the, quote, originals. Who are the originals, and what, why do you think he's the only remaining member? Sure. In, in, um, the campaign began on June the 16th, 2015. At that point in time, uh, there were just three or four people working on the 24th floor of Trump Tower uh, for the Trump campaign. It was um, uh, Corey Lewandowski, the campaign manager, uh, Hope Hicks, the communications director, Sam Nunberg, the political advisor, uh, Keith uh, Schiller, who was Trump security director. You could arguably put George Jijikos, who was the advanced director in that category. And then a couple of months later, uh, Michael Glasner joined as deputy campaign manager. One by one, they all fell away. Scavino then was the last person left standing. And, and again, it's because I think he has not called attention to himself, um, that he has been willing to do um, whatever work is expected of him. He is often uh, by the president's side, uh, uh, albeit in the shadows. And, um, and so he's, he's a loyalist who uh, doesn't draw attention to himself. And then, of course, most importantly, he's the guy who manages Trump's Twitter account. And, and, and thus, you could argue, a man in possession of many secrets. And uh, Trump has never felt threatened about that because Scavino himself does not put on any threatening airs. And nonetheless, um, uh, he, like Schiller, like Hitler, um, uh, you know, know a lot about this president, know a lot about his moods and everything he has said. Now, having said what I've just said, Terry, of course, that leads to a question. Well, if you're a person who knows a lot about Trump, is that necessarily a good thing when you have Bob Mueller out there investigating Trump and wanting to talk to people um, who might know things um, about uh, any malfeasance that's committed by the president? In fact, Dan Scavino has lawyered up. I, I don't know yet whether he's been interviewed by Mueller, but the Senate Judiciary Committee has uh, inquired about um, his proximity to the president, his knowledge of things. So what that means is that um, in all likelihood, Scavino will be, by virtue of being um, the loyalist, by being one of the last persons standing, also be a person to incur a lot of legal fees. You mentioned that the Senate Judiciary Committee has looked into Scavino. Dianne Feinstein, the ranking Democratic member of Judiciary, wrote to Scavino requesting documents and trying to schedule an interview for last January. On what grounds? What was that story about? Well, in a sense, uh, what Senator Feinstein was was wanting to know was um, a, it was basically a fishing expedition because um, uh, uh, she said that you know um, Scavino was an integral part of the 2016 campaign, has been by the president's side all this time, and, and just might know things. But more saliently, a month before uh, that letter that the senator sent out to Scavino, uh, the Washington Post broke a story that um, uh, relayed um, a number of emails that they'd apparently been able to read. Uh, they were emails um, that indicated um, communications between Scavino 
in his capacity as social media director for the Trump campaign and a Russian Facebook page, a Russian version of Facebook, wanting to help out uh, on the Trump campaign, wanting to post things on the site. And there was a particular American intermediary, Rob Goldstone, who figures into a lot of this uh, Russiagate stuff, uh, who was putting Scavino in touch with these Russians. And Scavino's reply, according to the emails um, that uh, were read to um, the Washington Post, he replied with enthusiasm, yes, indeed, I'd love to know more about this. We, we now know, of course, that, um, that Russia had an involvement in um, the Facebook activities of um, uh, relating to the election, uh, if not to Trump's campaign itself, but um, that there were these interactions between um, the Russian Facebook page and the Trump campaign, at least momentarily, would seemingly be the kind of thing that would draw the interest of the special counsel. And so I indicated a minute ago that, that uh, this means um, a lot of legal fees for Scavino, but of course it could mean a lot worse. It could mean that, uh, that Scavino um, had an involvement uh, with Russians whose interest it was uh, to swing the election over to Donald Trump, uh, obviously an interest that the Trump campaign shared. And if that collusion exists, it could well be that Dan Scavino is in the thick of it. And if that's the case, then he has more than just legal fees to be worried about. Yes, yeah, so Russia's version of Facebook emails Scavino, and Scavino writes back, please feel free to send me whatever you have. Thanks so much for looking out for Mr. Trump and his presidential campaign. That's pretty right. remarkable. It's pretty remarkable. We don't know anything after that. I, you know, I don't know how the Washington Post reporters uh, managed to see these emails. They do not possess them by the by the way that um, by the phraseology of the Washington Post story, um, and we don't know what emails, if any, came after. We don't know if meetings took place. Um, it could be that that was the beginning and the end of it, uh, but it's certainly tantalizing. And um, of course, it is very much in keeping with Dan Scavino that he would say, as he did in his reply to Rob Goldstone, you know. Uh, Sure, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to help out in Mr. Trump's campaign. I mean, I think that Scavino uh, at the time, uh, you know, was doing anything and everything he could to help his boss. That had been his posture ever since he was uh, the boss's caddy, you know, back when he was a teenager, uh, when Scavino was. And, um, it, it may well be that someone then pointed out to Scavino, you know what, we should we should steer clear of this. Um, there are legal implications to involving oneself with the Russians. Um, it may be that Scavino on his own just dropped the ball or was busy doing other things. But it may be something else again. It may be that meetings took place. It may be that more correspondences are there. Uh, this, again, is, is a, you know, among the mysteries that, that the Mueller inquiry is trying to unravel. So do you think Dan Scavino's job changed? When Twitter expanded the number of characters you're allowed to use in any one tweet to 280 characters? I don't think it changed exponentially, um, but I do think that it just meant um, you know, more face time with the president, more time laboring over you know, something that is um, elaborate in length. Uh, but I think that the main thing and, uh, that uh, has taken a toll on his personal life and, and you know, may also have legal implications is that he has this constant back and forth with Trump about um, uh, what Trump is going to say on Twitter and has a very vested involvement in, you know, Trump's social media activity. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, the, I mean, it, it, on a certain level, that's probably exciting for Scavino because 
it really has become, and I'm astonishing myself by saying this aloud, that, that Trump has proved himself out to be a master of a medium in a way that Franklin Roosevelt was understood to be the master of, of radio and JFK uh, later of, of television. That Trump now is, is really the first president of the social media era. He's not the first president to make use of social media. In fact, WhiteHouse.gov was created in um, the, the White House webpage was created in October 1994 during the Clinton administration. But back then, if you like look at that, and it actually you can actually go online and find um, the original WhiteHouse.gov. It has photos of Bill Clinton playing golf and, and of him playing a saxophone. It has photos of Socks the Cat. But it, but that's all it is. Then under the Bush administration. It's it's very also starchy. You know, there's a results.gov part that tracks efficiency in government spending. There's a little bit of a cornball aside with the so-called Barney cam where uh, a camera follows um, uh, the White House uh, and sees it through the eyes of the family dog, Barney. And then later, Obama, of course, um, is the first person uh, in the White House or the first president to actually deploy Facebook and, and Twitter, but does so with great caution. And um, the tweets himself that he writes, he really doesn't write. I mean, he never says, man, we got to tweet this out, much less write something on his own. Uh, the, the tweets that come out of Obama's Twitter account uh, take days and sometimes weeks to be vetted through legal and policy and ethics channels. And so um, Trump has completely changed the game on all of that. Uh, and and it's a game, by the way, that's being followed all over the world. I mean, now, and I'm not just talking about his own 50 million Twitter followers. I'm talking about other leaders, like the prime minister of India, Narendra Modi, you know, has a Twitter game that's very, very, um, you know, that, that has echoes of Trump's. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, the same thing. Uh, Trump has led the way on on all of this. And, and more, you know, close to my home in Washington, D.C., a lot of us journalists wake up in the morning to the sound of a notification saying that that Trump has just issued his first tweet of the day, which begins to drive you know the Trump news cycle. Yeah, but you, you've hit on something that I think is really important. Like President Trump is the first president who has actively tweeted himself, and who was very very active on Twitter because Twitter, in the terms of the American presidency, is very new. And so it's kind of remarkable that the first president to really use Twitter so much is setting the tone, and the tone is anything goes, whatever you want to say, like no rules. Yeah, I, and, and so I've, I've said that he's shown the way. Well, what is that way? What is Twitter today? It's it's one of the most toxic social media pages out there, you know, far more so than, than say, Instagram or, or I think even Facebook. And, it, and it's interesting, Terry, because, you know, Trump opened his Twitter account in 2009, didn't use it for a couple of years, and then he started using it very haltingly, just talking about how, how great his hotel properties were and, uh, uh, you know, then issuing his own opinions about the Yankees and stuff like that. When he started talking about politics, nobody took him seriously. And in fact, he was considered kind of an embarrassment. And and uh, and then when he established his candidacy uh, on June 16th, 2015, a remarkable thing happened. Trump went dark on Twitter for a 10-day period. And the reason for that, uh, I learned recently, I didn't put it in the story, um, uh, is that um, he you know, had that very, very uh, rancorous and controversial um, announcement speech 
speech in which he talked about, you know, immigrants being uh, rapists and thieves and drug dealers. And and uh, and Trump's own campaign was a little concerned as to how that would play. And he stayed off Twitter because of that. And it was only then when polls began to show that he was in second place behind Jeb Bush, that it had not crippled his presidency, that he then began to re-up on Twitter. And, uh, and, um, and for a long time, a lot of us political observers would watch Trump on Twitter and think, you know, he is he is like um, destroying his 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 candidacy. I mean, at, at its inception, by saying these incredibly obnoxious uh, and hurtful things. But in fact, they um, they instead fortified this campaign light motif that here was a guy who didn't bother to conceal, you know, the the ugly, you know, the the sort of superficial and and uh, and. Um, ever aggrieved and small side of himself. And in a weird way, uh, that collapsed the difference between him and a lot of particularly white working class people who saw themselves in him, saw that he told it like it was. And even if you'd hear them say, I kind of wish he'd stay off Twitter, they also kind of liked it. So do you read the president's tweets differently now that you've written about his social media director? Yes. I mean, now when I read it, I read it the way I'd listened to uh, when I was covering the Bush presidency uh, or, for that matter, the Obama presidency and listened to their speeches. I would hear a turn of phrase that sounded like something that Michael Gerson or John Favreau would have written. Uh, and now when I look at a tweet, I'll see um, – Three or four examples of of what it is that that makes um, James Comey a liar, and I'll realize you and, know, and, and that, worthy of jail. Yeah, yeah, yes. and worthy of jail. And and I'll say to myself, that's Scavino. Uh, when I'll see you know something that um, is poorly phrased, uh, that sounds more like Trump's. Um, loopy discursiveness, um, I'll say, ah, that's one Scavino didn't see. That's a Trump original. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, it's it, I can't say with 100 percent accuracy that I have cracked the code and deciphered every single tweet of Trump's. But it is you know clear now that the collaborative process between him and Scavino um, has certain guideposts to it, and that if you follow those, you have a sense of what Dan Scavino's value is to the president. My understanding is, that although President Trump uses Twitter so much, that he's actually not very computer literate. He doesn't go online. He doesn't email. Is that true? Yes, that's true. And that's a remarkable irony, isn't it? I mean, Trump has never, he claims, and I think it's true, has never emailed in his life. I don't think he has an email address. He does not go on the internet to read Breitbart. He has people who do that for him, but he doesn't do it himself. And and so it's, it's a rather remarkable peculiarity that someone who is in so many ways internet illiterate would in fact be this juju master of, um, of social media. Uh, and and, you know, he, um, again, he doesn't spend a lot of time doing sophisticated things on Twitter either. He just recognizes it as the mouthpiece that it is. And he recognizes its reach. And he can feel the response. The response to him is tangible, both in the form of, you know, people who like and retweet um, and also to um, uh, and also measured by um, how it's impacts the news, how it drives the content um, of the news. And uh, so, yeah, that, that a guy who like um, uh, 
is never on a computer, um, doesn't know how to do it, just basically dictates it, uh, would nonetheless be the sort of the, the pre, you know, have the preeminent uh, social media page of our time is, you know, is, a, is a, an incredible irony. Since Scavino and Trump met, when Scavino was Trump's golf caddy years ago, I just want to mention that the photo at the top of Scavino's Twitter page is a photo of Scavino and Trump in a golf cart. Yeah, that's right. No, I mean, Scavino does not shy uh, from the, you know, the narrative, his own narrative of how they met. And he believes that, you know, first of all, being a caddy is a noble undertaking. Secondly, that it is a, um, a, a virtuous thing that Scavino rose up in the ranks from that point. Uh, and in some ways, though, you know, the, the White House people have have pled with me or directed me um, to refrain in my story from suggesting that that Scavino is just basically a gopher. Um, there is a caddy aspect to him uh, and his relationship with Trump that carries on well past the golf course. So there's a lot that's emblematic about that. Can you uh, but explain the other what thing- you mean there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I mean by that is that, that, I mean, he still does what's asked of him. I mean, it's whether it is just being the body man for Trump, being at Trump's side. Trump will ask him a question, uh, you know, the same as he would on the golf course of, you know, uh, you know, what do you think is the most appropriate way to drive this particular putt, you know, the, this particular shot? He'll ask him, you know, what do you think of that meeting? What do you think of this guy and, and what he just said? Uh, you know, what do you think of this speech they want me to give? Uh, what do you think of the new chief of staff? And Scavino will tell him. Now, now I, let's just say, you know, Trump asks those same questions to virtual strangers. He asks them to people, the, uh, you know, in the press. So Dan Scavino is not by any means the decider on personnel uh, judgments. But he does, in the, in the main, whatever Trump wants him to do. And in that sense, he was then and still is a kind of caddy. Robert Draper, thank you so much for coming back to Fresh Air. Thanks for having me. Robert Draper's New York Times Magazine article, The Man Behind the President's Tweets, is on the Times website and will be published in Sunday's paper.